0: The Blast from Our Past Network. Lock your doors, close your windows, turn out your lights, for chills and thrills await you. It's time for Podcasting After Dark with your hosts, Corey Stevenson and Zach Schaefer. Stay with a friend, say your prayers as grisly ghouls close in to seal your doom. Tonight's episode, The Documentary... Lost Soul, the doomed journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr.
1: Moreau. We just thought that Richard Stanley doing Island of Dr. Moreau was one of the most exciting projects we'd heard of in a while. This is going to be a huge project and this is going to propel
2: Richard Stanley into the superstardom that he deserves as an auteur. It was a script we were extremely confident in that we thought would be some sort of milestone in the genre. Newline tried in different ways to contain the material. I wasn't particularly enthusiastic about the project, frankly. There was some lunatic movie that's known as one of the worst films ever made.
1: Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer were there to mess with the film as much as possible.
2: I've dealt with some very, very difficult actors in my life, but I have never,
0: ever dealt with somebody like Marlon Brando. He wanted an ice bucket on top of his head.
2: He'd covered himself in white paint. I think that's how the whole mini-me thing developed, of Marlon adopting this little guy.
0: It doesn't matter who directs it. It's not. It's not. It's not about the vision. It's a. You know. It's about the stars
1: Did you hear about? Oh my God! The, the Richard Stanley climbed into a tree today. It wouldn't come down.
2: He was living and breathing Moreau and then literally just have that murdered. I think he probably went a bit mad. I think once that rumor started that Richard Stanley was in the background, that I think that just grew into Richard Stanley then wanting to sabotage the shoot. <laughs> As it went on, it descended into more and more kind of madness. I knew that this was going to be totally insane and that we were going to be hugely lucky if we just finished a film with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Knowing that the odds were stacked against me, I resorted to witchcraft. Buffett wondered what happened to Richard Stanley. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Podcasting After Dark. I am one half of the Podcasting After Dark team. Corey, a.k.a. Sleazy C, joined with me as always, Zach, the total snackage Schaefer. What's up, buddy? This felt like my uh, TV Obscura intro. <laughs> it
0: sure did. I, I was going gonna- to come in hot saying that I was the antithesis of Val Kilmer's attitude in... Island of Dr. Moreau, but I'm not going to do that. I guess I just did in a way, but whatever. I'm doing good. Happy to do something uh, totally kind of left of center.
2: Yeah. Yeah, right. So, guys and gals, um, we are going to be talking about 2014's documentary film, Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. We are not going to be breaking it down, uh, scene by scene or anything like that, like we normally do. Uh, this is the first part in a two-part look at extreme auteurs, uh, in, yeah. intense artists, maybe. However, you want to take it. Um, but uh, we'll just uh, say it right now while we're here. Uh, Zach, what uh, in two weeks? What are you? What documentary will you be discussing? What is the second part to this?
0: I'll be discussing the 1999 documentary My Best Fiend by Werner Herzog, or Werner Herzog.
2: (laughs) Focusing on Klaus Kinski and his relationship, and it is wild, and I can't wait to talk about it, but like I said... These will both be freeform discussion episodes as opposed to full breakdowns. Uh, Zach and I, beforehand, were talking about how, how are we going to do this? Like, what's our format? Well, yeah, I'm just going to start talking, see what happens, have some fun with it. But the reason we're doing this is because uh, it seems like August is probably going to be always be our busiest month of the year, August and December, usually. And uh, summertime, Zach and, and his wife, Kristen, and their son, Bodie, are usually doing stuff. And with me and Myra, Uh, My mom will be in town for a few weeks and everything. So we're always busy in August. But Zach and I still wanted to bring you guys some new content and everything, but maybe something a little bit less intense, something that we could sort of handle. Uh, And so we are going to be talking about these two documentaries that we both love. Uh, First one is this one, Lost Soul. It's a documentary that Zach and I watched together, I think when it pretty much first came out back in 2014, right?
0: Yeah, we did. I think we watched it the same year it came out, or soon after.
2: Uh, I was already a big Richard Stanley fan. Uh, I think you were aware of Hardware and everything um, at the time, but you know, but you were probably more intrigued by the whole Island of Doctor Moreau thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually have a uh, history with this story, this this kind of uh, <laughs> caper, this tale, because yeah, I'm a fan of Richard Stanley's work saw hardware dust devil uh, knew this was coming out saw the pages of Fangoria talking about it and then Fangoria talking about the change in director a whole story about that Um, going to a Fangoria convention with John Frankenheimer there talking about the movie and hyping it up and promoting it I think I still have buttons or posters or something from it um, that they give out as promotion back in the day And so I remember them discussing the issues they had with but Frankenheimer at the convention did kind of what he, you know, is is allegedly has done in the documentary. Like he he toes the line, you know, he gets the movie out there, gets it made, and and he's there to promote it. So he's like, oh, well, if you're a fan of the story, you're going to enjoy it, blah, 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 blah. Um, And So when I saw the movie in the theater and didn't like it uh, and then (laughs) – and then for some reason I think I ended up buying it on DVD cuz I was like this movie is going to be uh you know a cult classic down the road. I just had this feeling and didn't like it more so when I watched it again <laughs> at home. And then this documentary comes out. It's very fascinating. I mean we all know the story. If you don't know the story, Corey will go into it, yeah, but I'll talk about if you it do second. know the story already, uh, to to be able to see all the people that are profiled in this, uh, and interviewed, and the whole thing kind of broken down, it's very fascinating, and I've got a lot of juicy thoughts about the whole thing.
2: Yeah, dude, me too. Um, so you, if y'all don't know, basically the title says it all: the doomed journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Doctor Moreau. So. The movie that you all know with Marlon Brando and uh, Val Kilmer and, and everything like that. The one you remember from the late 90s. Richard Stanley, the director of Hardware and Dust Devil. Uh, he basically pitched this. This was his dream project. He loves Island of Dr. Moreau. Even in the documentary shows off, he has like a first edition copy of it and everything. This was his dream project. He pitches it and then through a series of some his Fault, some not his fault, a series of insane things happen. And he gets fired from the movie. Uh, you know, a hurricane destroys the set. They bring in uh, John Frankenheimer to direct. They lose their main lead actor in Rob Morrow, and they bring in. Uh, shoot, uh, I forgot. His, I forgot to look up his name. Who did they bring David in? David Thewlis. David Thewlis. That's right. Uh, Val Kilmer was a monster. Marlon Brando was a monster in it. Uh, it was, you know, cast and crew were supposed to be there for, you know, what, like a, a, a you know, four or five week three weeks yeah it turned into a six month uh, orgy of drugs and sex and madness and it i mean and it keeps getting crazier to the point where richard stanley was supposed to be put back on a flight back to the u.s and he actually stayed in australia and then and then freaking inserted himself as an extra into the movie it is an insane story but unlike Zach's documentary, which is going to focus on multiple movies and more be about the people. This is about the people, but it's hyper-focused on one film. It's just focused on this one production of The Island of Dr. Moreau. And without my love for Richard Stanley and all that kind of stuff aside, it's a fascinating look at the fact that it's like almost like a Murphy's Law thing where like almost literally everything went wrong, as if... The, the universe itself was trying to get this movie not made. Um, but it pulled through. And, uh, yep, I saw it, dude. I didn't see it in the theater because I also, same as you, uh, Fangoria, I read the coverage and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't see it in the theater because I sort of knew about it and it, I, when I, what I saw just didn't really interest me. But I watched it right when it came out on video. I rented it or whatever. Yeah, fucking hated it. H- haven't seen it since. Thought it was just pure trash. But here we are. Years later, and I was telling my wife, who was, who was watching a little bit of the documentary with me, she was like, oh, wow, this is fascinating. I was like, it's infinitely more interesting than the actual movie itself. Lost Souls, yes. I think.
0: Agreed. It, it really is. I mean, uh, for those that don't know, that H.G. Wells story has been around for— it's one of his earliest stories he ever wrote. Fun fact, I was in a band in L.A. with the, grand, with the grandson of HG Wells.
2: I see the guy that directed the, um, the, the time machine and then also got fired from it.
0: Yes. Simon Wells. Uh, he also directed the Prince of Egypt, an animated movie, which I believe Val Kilmer might've been the voice of that in that movie. <laughs> okay. Uh, and he helped co-direct, uh, he did some ad work on back to the future part three. Okay. Uh, he's actually done quite a few movies, wonderful man, wonderful family, uh, the, the you know his lineage is uh, rich, and historical, and uh, you know he like I never got I wish I could call him up today and ask him what his thoughts are about this, but um you know I never got to talk to him about Island of Doctor Moreau, never got brought up. I would have loved to though, because I loved the t- uh, I thought it was a TV movie. I didn't realize it was a theatrical film, but the TV movie or the movie that came out in the seventies with Burt Lancaster hmm. and um. Michael York I think it came out in the late 70s actually 1977 Um, I remember that movie kind of being a part of my folklore of like you know oh this this is a really cool movie but it's really not that cool and maybe the, the special effects were kind of cool for the time Barbara Carrera was in it as well saw that a handful of times back in the day probably saw that more than i saw <laughs> uh this one <laughs> the frankenheimer film you know no offense to john frankenheimer he directed a movie called ronin yeah uh love that movie. after this yep. which was great he's actually uh, done quite a few good movies in his time but as they say in the documentary he's done some stinkers too uh they they use a a little bit more eloquent term than that but um you know the, the island of dr moreau's story is 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 a cool story uh, i know in the documentary they talk about the different versions that came out back in the day or richard stanley did and he's so uh has such a fondness for this project and i mean watching this documentary now this is the second time i watched it, it it's it's really fascinating uh, i have even more sympathy for richard stanley than i did then um because clearly this is a guy who is like he's a he's a true artist but he's not a businessman and doesn't get the business side of film of this industry and this documentary really exposes how horrible the the film industry is and can be um i mean we've interviewed a number of people that have basically said similar things of like working on a on a movie that didn't go as planned or they worked with X actor or Y actor or whatever and got, didn't get along with them. You know, you hear these stories all the time, but to heat, but to hear like firsthand accounts from people that to me, this feels pretty genuine. Like everybody they interviewed doesn't feel like they're, kind of exaggerating any of
2: the stories no because they don't you know always speak kindly of different people um and and yeah richard stanley like he's interviewed for this so you know he's in this documentary a lot so we get his point of view as well, and I mean, he's pretty open, but you know, you got to take obviously everything with a grain of salt, um, but he seems pretty open, but they could have made this without him. And the fact that he's actually central to this documentary, uh, it does feel like it, it, you know, it is coming from his sort of point of view. I don't know if he sort of put this thing together, but uh, it's, I, I, I find it to be pretty awesome that we have his point of view in this documentary here.
0: Well, it's an interesting documentary because oftentimes uh, a documentary on one specific film tries to be overall unbiased, right? They try to cover all the aspects of it. But this is, you're right, this is clearly like a Richard Stanley documentary as well. There's a lot of love uh, for Stanley. The Severin put this out. Uh, On the Severin disc that Corey got me, it's like a three- got three discs one of them is richard stanley narrating island of dr moreau <laughs> you know you can listen to him uh basically read the story which is pretty amazing
2: i don't have three discs <laughs> oh oops that's awesome well, you got me you got me one that has three discs <laughs> great
1: that's, dude, that's awesome bro that's awesome <laughs>
0: uh, well you know and 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 we're not going to go into uh even though i heard Fairly recently, like, he was somewhat exonerated from the behavior that happened to him. But, yeah, I guess we should address that, too.
2: Yeah, and we're going to have to address something else in in Zach's documentary as well. But, yeah, so... Richard Stanley, um, for those of you who don't quite know, uh, he shot to fame with the movie Hardware that we covered on Podcasting After Dark. I think it was my second uh, film way back in season one, three years ago at this point. Uh, he went off to do his sophomore effort, uh, didn't quite land uh, with Dust Devil, and we actually talked to Chelsea Field, which you heard last month uh, about.
0: And by the way, to interrupt you really quick, Richard Stanley talks about something that happened. I Because I don't want to give too many spoilers away. I will give a few away, but uh, he talks a little bit about financial issues with Dust Devil. That shoot sounded terrible. Yeah. And not for, for, sounds like for everybody. So, you know, what you heard in Chelsea Fields' interview, and if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. Um, Yeah, that movie was riddled with issues. Yeah. So, it, it, and, and like, yeah, Richard Stanley, uh, I'm surprised he made it out of that alive. So, no wonder, you know, if that, that, I don't even count that almost as his second directorial effort because it sounded like it was, a, you know, went wrong. But, anyways, yeah. sorry, continue. M-
2: maybe not as wrong as Island of Dr. Moreau. So, he attempts yeah. to make Island of, of Dr. Moreau, and then we, you know, watch the documentary. Uh, he's gone out of, like, the public eye for a long time. Uh, and he comes back with uh, Color Out of Space. And to critical acclaim and, and raving, everybody's happy that Richard Stanley's finally getting, you know, his just-deserved rewards and everything. And then almost immediately, um, allegations of abuse come out uh, to, about him. Um, Spectre Vision uh, drops him immediately from, I think, a two, a three-picture deal of doing H um, Lovecraft stuff, basically. Um, Severin too right and then Severin, Severin dropped this Blu-ray immediately disappeared from Amazon and then I believe about six months later pretty quickly um, he files a defamation lawsuit against the lady who who basically you know said what she said against him um, I think it's still wrapped up in the courts so I, I don't have any further information if he was exonerated or not or what happened but basically it's boiling down to and again always taking is a grain of salt it's a he said she said sort of scenario now um i do think it's interesting how quickly uh he got canceled before anything was actually you know proven but yeah. uh we that's a that's a whole nother discussion for for other people basically but that's where
0: for we're wrap at up with- after dark <laughs> and go listen to our patreon exclusive wrap up after dark if you want to hear some more uncensored thoughts that we have about uh richard stanley's career
2: and or cancel culture in general, and uh, yes. which is ironic. I mean, you and I are pretty left-swinging, but we're not that left. So, uh, you know, uh, innocent until proven guilty, I say, unless you are Bill Cosby and...
0: <laughs> Wait, did someone say my name? Did someone say Randy Cosby? Cuckoo, i am the Lizard King. What?
2: <laughs> You're the pill king. <laughs>
0: oh, man. Well, you know, and, and so... I I the reason I was bringing up the the Severin three disc set that this is a part of that is Corey's this, super
2: jealous of now.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. We'll, we'll share. We'll share. <laughs> um, when Corey and I watched this originally back in 2014 or whenever it was, um, I think we were both commenting about like, oh, I wonder what if he's going to make a movie again, and you know, and then obviously he did with with Colorado. Uh, color Out of Space, which, which we, we broke down. Yeah, yeah, we broke that down. If you haven't listened to that, go check that out. Um, and and so, you know, having a new lens and knowing where uh, he's at kind of currently, it was interesting to watch this again. Um, you know, it seems like for the most part, everybody had a kind of a fondness for him. Uh, I have to take a little bit of uh, like <laughs> I don't want to shit on this guy per se, but Bob Shea, the head of New Line Cinema, you know the guy is 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 super important in the genre uh history and he's responsible for a lot of great movies being put out. Um but his dismissiveness of Richard Stanley and his like his feeling of why he didn't think Richard Stanley was such a great guy is so fucking lame to me. Like when he goes off and you know, he makes this comment, I'll just say it. He's like, "Well, when I Met met Richard Stanley for the first time. Uh, you know, he uh, he asked for a coffee, and he asked for uh, three three packets of sugar. And I was like, who asks for three packets of sugar with a
2: black coffee? Uh, this guy is out of his mind. <laughs> dude, that's insanity. It's insanity come that on. Bob Shea thinks that that's insane. You know what I mean? Like,
0: dude, c- come on. Like, t- t- you know, he's clearly... Doing what Tim Sullivan did, Tim Sullivan, the director of 2001 Maniacs, Mm. uh, I've got no strong opinion about his movies that he makes. I don't think they're that great, and I think the guy's a little overblown, but he was like a script reader at new line. And he's like, yeah, you know, the guys, uh, we're hearing all these stories about, uh, Richard Stanley and, and all the craziness going on. And we're like, what's going on over there? And I'm like, who the fuck are you, dude? Yeah. Like it clearly you, they put you in this documentary because you are, well, this guy, well, he goes, you mean
2: the, the whitest white guy you've ever seen. Like
0: the whitest white guy you've ever seen. And you know, he must have a, he has a relationship with, uh, Fangoria. Cause I would see him at every convention and he would come on and say, like, oh, I'm making the greatest movie with this amazing cast. And you're like, the movie, it's a passable C movie, yeah. you know, whatever. But, like, I'm watching this guy. I'm like, who are you to give your opinion on this outside of being a, a known person in the genre like, oh, well, you know, right in the commissary. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? You're just s- speculating rumors. And fortunately, they have Faruza Balk right after him, after he throws something out there. Feruza Balk's like, yeah, I don't think that ever happened.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah thank God for Faruza Balk. She she and uh, Richard Stanley seem to have gotten along really well. And to your point, throughout the documentary, it seems like most of the people that worked under Richard Stanley liked him. People that worked above him. I don't think they got what they wanted out of him. Now, if you don't know like who he is or what he looks like, he he's he's very he's a very unique individual, especially in Hollywood. He is not Hollywood at all. He uh he's South African, I believe as he was born in South Africa. Um he is he, his mother, I believe was a practicing Magician, like magician, magic, like not stage magician. We're talking like sigil magic and and stuff like that, uh, magic with a K. And uh, so he grew up with all of that stuff. And if you see him now, he has wears these big long brim caps, and and he just he looks like he looks like the guy at the beginning of Hardware, essentially, who is yeah. I think the what the singer for the Fields of Nephilim band or something like that. Yeah, I, um, he so, looks
0: like a nomad. He you know, looks. That's what he looks
2: like. Um, yeah. and so. You know, I think that like his vibe just they just couldn't understand it, like at oh,
0: all totally. Totally. I mean it's so obvious. And and I think you know, you're not both coming from a background of just judgmental people and like, oh, why do you get why are you wearing that or whatever? Like it's clearly that the business side of this industry looked down upon him as an artist. Um you know, if he came in looking and then you get the flip side of John Frankenheimer, who is like this stereotypical 70s director with his like, you know, safari hat and his 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 outdoor jacket vest, you know, and like they're not. But then you've got the young people knocking that, you know, this guy comes in with his stupid hat on or whatever. It's like yeah, even you've
2: for, got Fruka Balka. Jesus Christ. Even how do you pronounce her name? Fuck. Feruza. Yeah, even Frusa Balk called that out. She's like, he just looks like an old director, dude.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and you know what? They're not wrong, and 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 the the suits are not wrong about looking at Richard Stanley and not thinking he's going to be able to carry a big budget Hollywood picture. Uh, they weren't wrong about that. Yeah, but but I don't feel like, uh, and and one of the one of the guys interviewed in in the, in the documentary even says that he didn't have a lot of support like the studio it's like the studio gave him all this money threw him out there and said okay go make your movie and the minute things didn't go their way they they didn't offer to you know get an assistant director out there to help him or anything like that
2: yeah so so basically to 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 back up what you're saying When he, you know, if we talk about just in pre-production, you know, he goes to, to L.A., to Hollywood and everything. He's he's from I think at that point he was living in London he has no yeah. car uh, I don't know if he even knows how to drive because I don't think he's ever had to, um but he has no car, so he gets to Hollywood. they put him up in this like hotel, but like eh, it's a little pricey let me give you a, we're gonna give you a, um an apartment you give him an apartment and it's like far away from everything, and he can't get to anything, so he starts missing meetings because there's no public transit in in l a barely you know yeah. there's no uber in 1995. you know no. so he's he's already it's almost as if they brought him here. They're like, we like your, you know, hardware was a big deal, you know? And, of course, none of them probably saw it. But they all knew no, the hardware not. was a big deal. And you're this, like, auteur, rising auteur. But at the same time, we have no respect for you. So we're going to bring you here and then just kind of, like, forget about you. And uh, and I think that's like, that co- go keeps going throughout this journey. But before we actually get to production, um, he has to... He doesn't want Marlon Brando as as Moreau, but somebody, I guess, at the studio or whatever, got him, and he agreed. And now they're about—he's about to like Moreau, Monroe, Monroe, Monroe <laughs> Mar- Marlon Brando—the Island of
0: Doctor Monroe. I know, from I've got too, some... col- too close for comfort. That would be amazing.
2: <laughs> so he has to do this meeting with Brando in order to basically save his job as the director, even though he wrote the script, pitched it. Got the artwork commissioned and everything. And you know, he, he made that pitch with the artwork and everything. Yeah. But okay, and this is how Hollywood works, guys. So he's got to go meet with with Marlon Brando. And what he does is, this is and this is you know important to the story overall. He contacts like a magician that he knows to do a sigil magic for him, for Stanley, Richard Stanley, so that all of this goes well. So that he actually essentially gets. Marlon Brando for the role. The guy does the sigil magic according to Richard Stanley at the same time that he has his meeting with Brando. Everything goes fine, it works. He got the job, he got the gig. All signs are now moving towards Australia. Hey everybody, Corey here. I just wanted to let you know that we'll be right back after these short
1: messages. We wrestled the demon Pazuzu in The Exorcist.
0: Your mother is in here, Karis. Would you like to leave a message? I'll see that she gets it.
1: We hooked the Fisherman Killer, Ben Willis, and I know what you did last summer.
0: Oh, you got a letter? I got run over, Helen gets her
2: hair chopped off, Julie gets a body in her trunk, and you get a letter. That's balanced.
1: We survived a summer away with the Angel of Death, Angela Baker, in sleepaway camp.
2: Look
0: what I did. I packed you and your cousin some goodies for the ride up to camp. Wasn't that nice
1: of me, hmm? But we ain't seen nothing yet. Join Alex and Dean of the Return Revenge Resurrection podcast as we go toe-to-toe with the ever-resourceful Michael Myers. I shot him six times! Be there as we discuss the Halloween franchise in its entirety, from John Carpenter's beloved 1978 classic to David Gordon Green's epic forthcoming finale. I shot him in the heart. We cover it all, the good, the bad, and the bloody. Return, Revenge, Resurrection, a podcast that slashes its way through horror movie franchises. You don't know what death is. New episodes every Thursday, available wherever podcasts are found.
2: I told everyone! And now back to the show. While he's in Australia, actually, I think it's probably it might even be before he got there. There were some rumblings that he wasn't the right man for the job because there was a scene that he had to film that was essentially just going to be on monitors in the background of another scene. Like it was just going to be computer monitors or like, you know, you know, whatever monitors and shit showing like some hospital stuff. And the producer, he just took way too long to do it. And I think that was the first red flag where the producer was like, yeah. uh-oh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, if like this scene should be a nothing scene and you should have banged this out in a day at max, you know? Or a half a day or something like that. And he just went too long. So right now, there's a little bit of a red flag of can he handle a production of this size? And I don't know if I should ask ask this of you now, or at the end of this discussion. But my question to you is, was he ever the right person for this job?
0: No, no, definitely not. And then the reason I brought up Dust Devil earlier is because, and not really getting that done or finished, because he didn't even really get paid uh, as much what he was supposed to get paid for it. Um, You know, he's an indie... Indie director when indie directors were actually indie directors. There's, there's no such thing as indie directors now in Hollywood. It's just because everything, you know, an independent film is still like a big name person usually doing a movie. I don't think he he didn't have the experience behind it. Uh, keep him on as the screenwriter and maybe an executive producer. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. But not give him the reins as a director with... um uh, you know, he Hardware had, what, a cast of five, six people? Yeah. Uh, Dust Devil had a cast of maybe the same amount. And no one at the time uh, on the level of Marlon Brando. And they even said Marlon Brando's career was already going down the shitter at that point. Um, but he was still a big name for a, not a first-time director, but a first-time, you know, studio director, I guess. And it just, yeah, no, I think everybody, the writing was on the wall. Um, you know, again, Bob Shea, who greenlit so many of these amazing franchises, TMNT and Nightmare on Elm Street and um, shit. I mean. Evil Dead. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, so many franchises. Um But the guy also probably was sitting at a desk and just take, you know, someone walked in and said, oh, we got to make a movie with this guy. Yeah. And didn't have any insight into that. So, yeah. And and to bring him out to L.A. at that time, there was, yeah, like you said, no Uber, no, uh, no. Such thing as transportation, like he <laughs> probably didn't probably have a out. driver,
2: yeah. Help the guy out, give him a fucking driver, like give him a friend or something, you know. Like, well,
0: he, yeah, because he said he like barely even had a penny to his name yeah. at that point. He had no he was broke, he was broke from Dust Devil, he didn't get any money. And that was a Miramax film, yeah, you know. And the Miramax guys were like, Oh, but I wonder, it makes me wonder, knowing what we know now about people like Bob Weinstein.
2: And oh, Harvey Weinstein, you're
0: getting or, sorry. You're, Harvey, I'm
2: getting my Moreau's and Brandos confused. You're getting your your Shays and your Weinstein's
1: confused. Yeah.
0: Neil and Bob, or is that what you do? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Um yeah. You know, like who, these guys in the in, in the closed doors, just making these choices all the time and not having a whole lot of foresight. The mid '90s churned t- out some really crappy movies. You yeah, there's some dredge coming out at that time, and so. It makes me want, and probably like way too much money. Just money being thrown around, um, you know. Dust Devil has like five different cuts, and so it makes me wonder. Not all, not, none of the cuts are all that great. Like I don't think, but I don't think Dust Devil is one of those movies where they, people go like, "Oh my gosh, you got to see this movie." No, you go see Hardware, and leave it at that. Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, to to answer your question, very long windedly. Yeah, he was not the right person for the job. Shouldn't have been.
2: And I I agree with you. As much as I love Richard Stanley, and we also know his next big movie, Color Out of Space, will be probably the same size cast as Hardware and Dust Devil. So maybe some guys and gals, some directors, are just good at, at working on those size productions. I mean, I do think it's not... An easy task to wrangle a 30 million dollar production uh which is what i believe island of dr moreau uh blossomed to once they got brando there's all kinds of um you know Different people were attached to the project. Uh, Like I mentioned before, Rob Morrow was originally there. Um, You all know him uh, from Northern Exposure and whatnot. Um, And uh, he was originally part of it. I think he was in like
0: Spring Break or Private Resort, one of those uh – those like young sex comedies back in the day
2: I'm sure uh, our pal aaron uh will will tell us and uh go check out her podcast manic movie Monday. it's a good it's yes. a good one um but yeah so so a, a lot of things and I think it's I don't you know I think it's a collection of both him and outside forces. I mean the hurricane when they get to uh Australia, you know, uh it, it becomes an issue. Um you know they they get there and he basically sort of Richard Stanley sort of like shelters himself into a uh his like office slash you know um, apartment whatever he's he's living there. And I, I think he, he had snapped by that point because at that oh, point yeah. he was only he was like, I think he was just drawing constantly and basically giving people, you know, uh, uh you know, storyboards and stuff. He's like, this is what we're going to do. But he's not actually talking to them. He's just sort of handing them out. And a director has to be in among the people, you know?
0: Yeah, totally. I, I feel like I feel like he lost his shit when they lost Bruce Willis. That's right. Yeah, so because Bruce... Bruce Willis was originally supposed to be attached to do this. Then he went through his divorce with Demi Moore and for whatever reasons he had to stay in the United States, so he couldn't go overseas. So they lost Bruce Willis in the in the studio it sounds like they got like really pissed off about that. That it has nothing to do with Richard Stanley. Yeah. You know, and, but they like almost blamed it on him and they're like, Oh, this isn't going to happen now. You know, and James Woods was attached. And at the time, James Woods was still uh, a normal person. His political (laughs) ideology hadn't come into play yet. He didn't go to cuckoo town and um, he was somewhat of a big name. So to have those three guys attached was clearly would sell the project. Um, but then not and then not having those two guys and then rob morrow yeah he was he was on that show and he had starred in other movies but he's not a big name no you know and in this in this clearly i think originally uh yeah ballooned into 30 million but they had originally budgeted it for like five to eight million or something like that which at the time i think it's is a is a low budget film as well uh but stanley's ideas were so grandiose it it wasn't going to fit that
2: and and i think the the you know studio tampering happened also in in the the pre-production area too because one thing the, this documentary does a great job of is showing us the original artwork. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, dude, it was such a different movie, and that's the movie I wanted to see. And maybe, you know what, maybe one day we'll get it in comic book form or something like that, kind of like how Dark Horse did with, like, George Lucas's original Star Wars script, you know, The Star Wars and everything. They, they made turn that into comic book. It'd be great if they did that here because— Man, the artwork that was on display in this documentary just was second to none. Absolutely stellar.
0: Oh, yeah. Totally agree. It It's a shame. Um, it's a shame that you can't make a variation. I'm sure you could make a variation on this story. You know, it's yeah. got to be out of public domain at this point. It's so old. And so just making... because make his version but call it something else because it's really good i mean it's it's beautiful and and what ended up winding up on screen was a joke um you know on so many levels yeah you know it's not frankenheimers frankenheim if someone said to you hey i want you to do this thing that i you really don't want to do but i'm going to give you a shit ton of money to do it and I'm going to give you more projects after that that are going to pay really well. Will you do it? Of course you're going to say yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah, because Frankenheimer, that was a part of his deal. He got a three-picture deal out of saving the island of Dr. Moreau. So we got Ronin out of it, which... Well, as you said earlier, it was a great movie. I I have that on DVD. Actually, I fucking loved that movie when I saw it in the theater. Um, yeah, Ronan's
0: badass. That that was one of his last movies he ever did, and what a great swan song.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. Robert De Niro is fantastic in it, and and it was. It didn't feel like a Robert De Niro movie. You no. know what I mean? It felt like an action movie with Robert De Niro in it. So I, I always
0: Jean Reno's in that shit. Mm-hmm. He's good.
2: It was so good. Um, but, you know, looking at Richard Stanley, look at looking over the old artwork and talking about what his, in, what his vision was, he did have a strong vision. He had a very uh, specific vision and I think a very correct vision. And I think you're right. He should have just written it and then or been the producer and had a hand with with creating it, crafting it, pushing his ideas forward. but he did not have the clout to do that. A lot of times the producers are, are obviously hired either by the studio or they are the people that put up the money themselves as well. He did not have that kind of clout or anything. I mean, also consider the fact that, you know, him wanting to do this, required the studio to purchase the rights for it because they were still being held by the, uh, the Wells estate. Um, so, so right there, it's already a big prospect and he needs help doing it, you know? And I think the problem is that his vision was so clear and true and beautiful that I think everyone was like, well, then we don't need you. We can see your vision. You gave us the vision. Now we don't need you. And I think the studio knew that from the get go, and I think they just needed an excuse to essentially get rid of them. I mean, the the producer even mentions when they did the budget for it for the movie, they added in another what 1.5 million for a new director mid production. Who the fuck line items that in prior, you know, like like beforehand?
0: Yeah, no, I'm. It was just, yeah, it feels like a setup to me,
2: right? Feels like a setup. So they get to. Australia. The place they want to film is in the middle of fucking nowhere. Um, But he picked it because there's this giant uh, volcano there, a volcanic mountain, that he wanted to use to sort of, um, you know, center all the shots and everything like that and give people an idea of what the, the geography and the location was. Um, unfortunately I think they probably scouted that one hour of day. Cause apparently that mountain was only visible one hour a day. And then, uh, after that it, there was, you know, they got there, they started production and everything. And then a fricking, I think a hurricane hit. It was before Marlon Brando got there and everything. It was before Stanley, Richard Stanley got fired. So essentially it was right away. Fucking there's a hurricane. Destroys everything. And then once they sort of get things start getting rebuilt, Marlon Brando's daughter commits suicide. Um, so he's already not mentally there, right? And he's already yeah. like a week late and everything. And in that process, Richard Stanley gets let go from the the show because he never got to even work with Marlon Brando.
0: He didn't get to work with Marlon Brando. I think originally he said he had kind of envisioned Jürgen Prock now. Mm-hmm. Um, who from Das Boot, uh, yeah. is playing Dr. Moreau, which would have been brilliant again, another kind of indie move to do that. Yeah. He was, uh, um, he
2: was, um, Papa Atreides in the original Dune, right? The David Lynch Dune.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's been in a bunch of great yeah. movies back in the day. Yeah. Uh, and, but, but one person that Richard Stanley unfortunately did get to work with was Val Kilmer. <laughs> and the guy who got hired on to, uh, he was originally going to play like the lead. Yeah. You know, like one of the lead good guys.
2: Yeah. And I guess after he got super big, this is right after Batman Forever. And yeah. apparently, Val Kilmer's mind just snapped because he became an insufferable twat, from what I can understand. Uh, uh, one story. Uh, has him lighting the focus puller's um, uh, what the fuck sideburns, sideburn hair with a cigarette while the focus puller is pulling focus for an active shot. And Val Kilmer is sitting next to him, burning with a cigarette his, his, what you just said, his sideburns. Sideburns. I don't yeah. know why I'm forgetting that word because in my mind... All I can think of some people, and this is also going to apply to Klaus Kinski and Zach's episode. Some yep. people just need to be punched in the nose. You know what I mean? Like, like I don't advocate violence at all, but some people just need to be fucking hit. And Val Kilmer at this time sounded like he just needed to be fucking, he needed to be checked is when he needed.
0: Yeah. One of the actors that's interviewed, uh, extensively in this documentary is uh, Marco Hofschneider. The the German the gentleman,
2: right? The German actor.
0: Yeah, yeah. He uh mostly was known for a movie called Europa Europa. And by the way, uh like Mark DeCostos and Ron Perlman, this were also in this cast. Yeah. I just want to throw that out there. Yeah. So um but yeah Marco Marco is interviewed extensively and he's he's great. Uh he seems like he's got his shit together too. Uh, Feruza is interesting because, like, she remembers everything so vividly well, but she doesn't remember the times when, like, maybe she kind of flew off the handle or, or wanted to party with one of the guys on the set, you know. Um, she doesn't – she's like, I don't know if that happened. Or and, the, and then they interview the guy, and he's like, oh, yeah, we – you know, it happened, essentially. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, Marco, you know, relays some Val Kilmer stories, and – You know, right now, Val Kilmer is getting a lot of love because of his appearance in the new Top Gun movie. Um,
2: And his documentary Val, I think, got pretty well received.
0: I think that why. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing that he did this documentary that's on Amazon called Val. Uh, You know, I feel bad for the dude that he had throat cancer and he's going through throat cancer and can't talk uh, very well. But that has nothing to do with the fact that he's an egomaniac or at least was an egomaniac. Maybe he had a coming to Jesus and changed his, you know, the fucking, uh, life around, which is great.
2: Maybe, car- maybe karma fucking checked him.
0: I think so because you know, he, t- in, in, in the documentary, his, his documentary, he gives his perspective on all of these times when people said he was acting egotistical or, or, you know, uh, pompous or arrogant Like, what you know, he's a method actor, for one, so he would be super into his role, but that has nothing to do with the fact, the, the way he treated people. And when you've got one person saying, I didn't do all these things, or I didn't do, this is the reason why I did these things, but then you've got six or seven other people going, no, you're an asshole. (laughs) you know, then you're going to side with the majority
2: on that, right? And the nice thing is a lot of the people they talked to um, were the crew from like Australia or, you know, some some Aboriginal actors from there and everything. And you can tell that they were a bit uh, disconnected from Hollywood because there were no, you know, holding back on things, which was, I felt rather, it felt authentic to me, I should say.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I think of, The episode following this, when we talk about the Warner Herzog documentary, the locals or the people from outside of Hollywood working with these, you know, quote unquote, uh, a list actors were like, we we don't give a fuck who you are. If you're going to be an asshole, we're going to treat you, (laughs) you know, accordingly
2: to the point where we're going to offer Warner Herzog. Do you want us to kill him? We will do that. Do you want us to yeah, kill Yeah, spoiler. Them? We will talk. Spoiler on that one. We'll talk more about that. It didn't quite go that far here. It didn't,
0: but but you know, Val Kilmer though, uh is just to me is such a douchebag in, in this. I'm talking about this project. Yeah. He yeah. might have been a sweetheart in other projects, and that's fine. But just an egomaniac and throwing his dick around like he's so cool you know and yeah he is cool and do i love his work yeah i do do i think he's a hunky dude and like uh great actor yeah i do but is he a grade a asshole um i'm gonna say probably he is you know i I don't know the guy was yeah or was yeah uh i know you know he's doing all these things now like people like oh but he does autograph signings and Yeah, because he needs to make money, you know? And so, like, don't give me this shit like he's doing it for the fans. Don't give me that shit, you know? Like, he's got to make money and um, on top of that, too. But, yeah, some of the stuff he pulls in this is such bullshit, and it's, like, infuriating. I'm just like, come, oh, my God. Like, where was the studio... Isn't there supposed to be a dude on on set, like from the studio, a producer, and be like, "You can't do this shit, man."
2: I think there was, but then I think Marlon Brando got that guy, uh, <laughs> you know, gone or something. There was something uh, a comment about that where that guy was like, "Well, I guess I was out because Marlon Brando's yeah. like, 'Yeah, you're not the director. You're gone.'" And you know, and, and
0: speaking of of Marlon Brando, yeah, let's and talk Marco, about that. <laughs> Mar- Marco Hofschneider, um, Marco Hofschneider is a very uh talented German actor. He does most of his movies in Germany now, which I, I'm looking back at this project. I'm like, well, no duh. Of course he does most of his projects <laughs> in Germany. Cause he doesn't have to want to have to deal with some of the bullshit that goes on in American movies that are made. Um, he was supposed to have a huge part in this movie, but Val Kilmer didn't like uh, like parts of his, his role. And then Marlon Brando, you know, he didn't kiss Marlon Brando's ring, and Marlon Brando gives his role basically to Mini-Me.
2: Yeah, to Nelson beca- de la Rosa, which, which was— Which became
0: Mini-Me. Yeah,
2: yeah that's—no, you're, you're not Zach's not being, like, mean to him. No. Th- this whole thing, like, we all—the Mini-Me that we know, the joke of Mini-Me from Austin Powers sort of came or pretty much did come from— this relationship between Marlon Brando and Nelson De La Rosa. Um, And like you said, Marco talks about the fact that Marlon Brando tried to speak German to him, and Marco's like, what the fuck are you saying? Whereas, because he, he didn't even speak German. Whereas uh, Marlon Brando spoke, I think, Spanish to Nelson de la Rosa, and he played along with it, and so he curried uh, Marlon Brando's favor, and then he literally, Marlon Brando's like, he's going to be my nude number two guy. And they demoted Marco's character from one that was in every single scene to a character that was only in maybe three scenes. And then on top of it, Nelson De La Rosa became a fucking twat too on set as well. Like he power went to his head as well. By the way, guys and gals, have been watching a lot of the boys lately, so twats in my uh, my repertoire now. But uh, but fucking. Uh, even he turned into a little fucking bastard because of the the him hanging out with Marlon Brando. He, according to Marco, he punched him in the dick in uh, in the elevator. And Marco's like, "What am I gonna do? I can't be caught beating up the smallest man in in on Earth. Like I'm the asshole." Then,
0: which got parodied in Austin Powers. Yes, it and, did. Which is a new line movie. It's yes. A, so you know, like you're, I'm, i I was starting to put all the uh, boxes together as I'm watching this. And I'm like, oh, so New Line, instead of, you know, dealing with things in a different manner, more civil, like appropriate manner, they make another movie where they make fun of it and, you know, they get away with that. And you're like, fuck off, man. Poor Marco Hofschneider is like a super talented dude and, you know, gets demoted for this guy who had no acting experience whatsoever. Uh, very unique. You know, he. I don't think I've ever seen anybody that looks like him, but... Um, and they spent so much money on, you know, having him look like Marlon Brando's sidekick, and like I think the, the the producer or one of the guys interviewed, he's like, oh, the best scene in cinema history is like it's the scene with uh, him the 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 two of them on playing piano, like the mini piano on top of the large piano, and I'm like, that's your. Opinion that's the best scene in cinema history. <laughs> oh my god, no wonder this movie didn't go the way it was supposed to go.
2: Seriously, dude, fucking seriously. So, I do, I did love feruza Balk saying when she first saw Marlon Brando coming out of the uh the, the woods, she was like, Oh, is this one another one of the creature designs? <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, she she doesn't hold any punches back, and you know, she's a talented actor. Uh, who's been in so many great movies, like *The Craft* for one. Yeah, uh, that's considered by many to be one of the best movies, most best like horror films of the '90s, right? She had a very close relationship with with Richard Stanley. It makes sense because she seems like she's kind of an artistic, kind of you know avant garde type person. Um, and she was gonna walk from the movie too, but they threaten her career, and of course you can't. Uh, This we know what happens in this industry if you don't do the things you're supposed to do, unfortunately. Yeah. And she especially
2: in this era as well.
0: Yes. And especially being a woman, unfortunately. And my God, like. You know, Val Kilmer got out of this scot free and Marlon Brando pretty much did, too. I mean, he didn't he was like I said, his career was already going downhill. Uh, David Thulis, who wasn't interviewed for this, it would have been interesting to get his perspective. He's, you know, he's done. Uh, I think he did, did, had a movie come out prior to this called Naked, uh, an art house film. Okay. And he's he was in one of the recent seasons of Fargo. He was great in that. Okay. He's a great actor. He's been in a bunch of things. Um, I remember seeing. Him, I remember when they're like, "Oh, David Thulis is going to be in this." I'm like, "That's an okay. Is he <laughs> supposed to be the hero of this whole thing?"
2: And I always yeah, forget I that uh, uh, Tim Morrison is in it as well. They didn't interview him. Uh, Boba Fett. He plays Boba Fett now. Uh, they 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 oh they didn't teeth? actually. Boba teeth. <laughs> but yeah, Boba teeth. <laughs> Good one. Uh, yeah, they didn't actually interview Val Kilmer. Um, obviously, they didn't interview Marlon Brando. He's already been uh, passed. Uh, they didn't interview David Thewlis, but they did interview Rob Morrow, which I thought that was cool of him to uh, come on for a movie that he's technically not in. You
0: know, I, I agreed. I feel I felt bad for the guy. I was like, oh, dude, your <laughs> poor guy was working his ass off because they he got no direction whatsoever. Um, you know, if you want to see Val Kilmer's perspective on this, you go watch his documentary. Uh, it's again, there's some. What's the line in um, uh, Prince of Darkness by uh, Wang from Big Trouble in Little China? And he's like, are we heavily stroking ourselves here? I feel like that's <laughs> that goes on in the Val Kilmer documentary. There's a lot of heavily stroking themselves in this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Rob Morrow seems like a super cool dude, and his perspective was great too. I felt like, man, they could have made this, you know, he jumped ship. I love how everybody was calling Bob Shea. Back yeah. in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> you like, you got to get me out of this, man. You got to get me out of this.
2: <laughs> yeah, that that was kind of interesting. And they interviewed Bob Shea. He, he's on it as well, which is is great. And then, like, a lot of, you know, the behind-the-scenes people and some some choice actors from it, uh, they don't talk to Ron Perlman or anything like that. No, but uh, he's
0: in a, cl- in, a, yeah. in a scene. Yeah. I'm like, holy shit, I forgot Ron Perlman's
2: in this. Yeah. Yeah. No, me too. I, I saw I was like, ah, oh, Ron Perlman. But it's funny. Like, you said you're piecing things together. About the fact that, you know, New Line and the whole mini-me thing. And I think you're right. Like, I think those jokes, yes, we know they came from this. But I think, like you just, you pointed out, I think they're also riddled with, like, literally inside baseball type of jokes. Like, behind-the-scenes type of jokes. And I think you're right that he, I think, didn't, isn't the scene with him getting, like, getting punched in the dick by mini me even in an elevator too like it's just oh yeah i think so it's just it's it's just just crazy but you say you were piecing that together i just pieced it together too so the guy that he asked to do the sigil magic for all he didn't ask wild (laughs) he didn't ask for it to like go well or anything like the movie to go well he asked for uh, to get Marlon Brand like, for the meeting with Marlon Brando to go well. And <laughs> Magic 101, be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. Consequences and all. And that's why uh, through the, that style of magic, like sigil magic and stuff like that, um, it's recommended that heavy meditation is done as well, not just for the practice of the magic, but also to try to, you know, get to the actual thing that you want. Like, is this really what you want? Like, the easiest example is, you know, you're like, hey, you do a sigil magic for, like, I want, you know, a lot of money to come in to me, you know, and then all of a sudden your freaking dad dies tomorrow and then you get inherited. But you didn't want your dad to die, you know what I mean? So I'm like, and and these are, like, the warning signs and, you know, everything. And then these are all things that, like, I know and whatnot, but I didn't put it together until just now talking about it with you. But like that's all he asked for or at least that's what he says in the documentary we don't know for sure and the you know the universe gave it to him but also all the consequences that came with it meaning if he didn't have Marlon Brando on here it might have turned out differently but he does mention when everything does go to shit that his the guy he had do the magic for him i think he was also like some kind of biologist or something like that and somehow yeah, contracted like a flesh-eating virus unspeknownst to him. I think he almost died, but when he was in the hospital with his bones like being eaten away by this virus, uh, all of the magic stuff that apparently he did for other people fell apart, which I find also very interesting to show what the connection is between the results and the actual magician. But again, these are all kind of conversations we can have at a later <laughs> date and maybe on another podcast. Um, but Zach. What were your thoughts on, or just in general, what are your thoughts on this whole, like, the occult aspect of Richard Stanley and how he actually used it, um, you know, for his own gains, I guess? Well, I
0: appreciate his honesty, <laughs> you know, that he wanted to uh, get this done by any means necessary in, in by invoking you know, magic into it. And like you said, you never know what portals you're opening up when you're messing with some... Shit that is not, uh, quote unquote, mainstream, and yeah, it, it it's like he, whether it was simply you know, coincidence or, um, you know, cause and effect, all these things happening one after the other, that it, it just the outlook. <laughs> Outlook not so good, you know, on the <laughs> magic eight ball or whatever. Um it wasn't. And you know, he, he never specified, I want to make this movie from beginning to end, and I want everybody in it working with me happily, and blah 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 blah. No, he had one perspective in mind, and um it 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 he got that, and that ended up being the thing that kind of ruined everything else.
2: Yeah, because If they didn't have Marlon Brando from the get-go, and that was before Val Kilmer, Marlon Brando made the movie bigger than I think it was ever intended to be, just with his presence there. And I don't mean his physical presence. I mean, just having Marlon Brando, it already balloons the budget, but at the same time, it puts it in a different stratosphere. And I think one that it wasn't appropriate four uh with marlon brando i think it would have been better
0: i think if you had jürgen proc now in this it would have been 10 times better and like,
2: and, and i probably casting sure, is everything and of course <laughs> And, of course, like, Jürgen Prochnauer probably wouldn't have fucking stipulated, like, I only have seven days to shoot or something like that. Like, he would have been on the production. But, of course, like, Marlon Brando is like, you only have me for this amount of time. And then same with Val Kilmer. And then on set, Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando, buttheads, they they did not like each other. Yeah. <laughs> Looking back, why would they? They are two massive egomaniacs. And as what we all know, egomaniacs don't like to be around other egomaniacs because it takes the, the spotlight away from you.
0: We'll talk about Jurgen Prock now uh, again when we get to In the Mouth of Madness on our Carpenter Factor for Patreon exclusive, uh, a tour de force series the Carpenter factor. Check that out if you're not a Patreon subscriber. Please consider becoming one. But we also talked about Jurgen Prock now when he was in The Keep, the Michael Mann movie.
2: Yes, that's right. Yeah, I knew we I knew we reviewed a movie with him. Yep, yep.
0: Yeah, so but uh you're talking about like egomaniacs. You know, Feruza kind of alludes to it. Um I think she was the one that did he, that that Brando had this disdain with acting. Like on one hand he liked it, and on the other hand, he, other hand he hated it. Like he didn't even read the script, and he was telling her, like this isn't this movie's gonna be trashed. It's not going anywhere. Just just have fun, you know. And which is clearly what happens if you watch the movie. He's having fun. He's having fun with himself, um, but he's not acting. Worse shit. And it's such a shame, you know. Uh, we just broke down Harley Davidson and the Mar role man, uh, last month. And he, we talked about Mickey Rourke, Mickey Rourke idolized Marlon Brando back in the day. He wanted to be Marlon Brando. I know, um, and, and I know this from hearing it out of his m- mouth, Mark Ruffalo wanted to be Marlon Brando, like so many actors who you would consider at, at some point in their career, cause Mark Ruffalo is still a great actor. Uh, Mickey Rourke was a great actor. I don't think he is anymore, you know, but so many people looked up to Marlon Brando, the old school one. um, And it seems like at, at some point he should have just retired from acting, but he kept coming back, maybe because the money was so good and he could get away with everything. Val Kilmer did. Val Kilmer, though, eventually, I think people stopped putting up with his shit. Yeah, uh, I think it was maybe after Sultan C. Uh, that was maybe the last kind of s- mainstream big budget movie he did for a while. Then he was doing a shit ton of like straight to video stuff. And I think MacGruber was one of the few films that kind of brought him back into the spotlight. <laughs> I, again. Love, like,
2: I love MacGruber and I MacGruber. love him in it.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's great in it. I love when he uh, goes
2: week
0: <laughs> Yeah, he's great. in you know, and like they were able to get a good performance out of him um i mean i would have like armchair quarterback what point in this and and i'll and i'll ask you the same question at one point early on would i have decided oh no we gotta change gears on this it probably would have been when they were deciding on the location yeah because the location they decided on was an hour from where the hotels were so you're talking about two hours out of a you know, a shooting day, uh, traveling and it was literally the wettest part of the continent of Australia. Yeah. The wettest part. They chose the worst location to shoot in. Um, and that really sealed the fate on a lot of levels, you know? So that's where I think I would have started pumping the brakes where, where would you have pumped the brakes in this whole thing?
2: You know, it's funny. I was going to say Marlon Brando, but I think you made the better case. I think location right away out of the gate, going to Australia in that location, remote location. Um, even like uh Frankenheimer's what DP that they talked to. Um, and here he's like, he was go- cool
0: by the way. I liked him.
2: Yeah, me too. Yeah. He was, he was cool. And he's like, but you know, you, you walk five feet into the, the jungle, And it's the jungle. Like it's all the jungle. And then when we even said, when we got to where we were going to go, it was originally a, a banana like farm, you know, in the middle of the jungle. And they had to actually plant more jungle to make it more jungle. Like he's like, why didn't you just shoot it? Like an hour back by the hotel where it's the same fucking jungle as everywhere else. It's a jungle.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, that's a huge difference between someone who is, is making a movie for, uh, for the screen versus someone who's making a movie in their mind. You know, when you're playing with your GI Joes in your backyard and you're like, Oh, this looks really cool. Or, Oh, I have to have this authentic thing. uh, But versus shooting it on a camera and seeing what it looks like on camera where you can manipulate things. uh, Clearly. I think there were people not aware of that. Richard Stanley being the one. Um, I don't know him personally.
2: But does that, like, fall on the producer? Does that fall on the scout, uh, the location scout? Like, I I know that, like, ultimately the final call is probably Richard Stanley, but I would have think—and this kind of goes back to our previous discussion about he had no defense. He had no—like, even though, like, that one producer guy was, like, seemed to be on his side but didn't also seem to be smart enough to help him. Like, he should have guided him. Somebody should have guided him, be like, I know you want this— because of this, we, you want this mountain and everything. But yeah. what if you know we shot over here and do something else? Yada, yada yada. I feel like someone should have guided him to maybe a better idea and a better location.
0: Yeah, it sounds to me like New Line was this company that just like they wanted to give people an opportunity, but they gave people and the people they gave an opportunity to were people that knew what they were doing from the onset, versus you know, a studio handpicking a guy fresh out of film school or whatever, probably going, okay, you're new to this game, so we're going to give you X, Y, and Z to make sure everything goes right. This was like, you know, the the wound was had already reopened and blood spurting out, and they're like, okay, well, let's get some Band-Aids there, and uh, we'll see what we can do to patch it up. Like, there was no real, like... It was just so all over the place. I'm su- I'm surprised this movie didn't bankrupt New Line. New Line just, you know, they they just wanted to get it out, which they eventually did.
2: And then that's what Bob Shaven says. Like he he says in the documentary that his mentality is just get the movie finished. We'll see what we have at the end. And I'm like, okay, that's that's a that's a fine mentality. But how about you actually help the filmmaker uh, get there? So by this point, Richard Stanley's gone. He is he was supposed to be put on a plane back to wherever I don't know if it was LA or if it was to London or wherever he didn't get on that plane he wound up going native and sort of staying in Australia and then stumbling sort of weirdly stumbling upon a group of extras and then working himself into that group to the point where he becomes a part again of the production but now as an extra in a in a dogman mask and you know it's it's i mean this is insanity this is absolute insanity and then he like it's essentially he comes full circle he comes full circle and he's there and they don't even know that it's him and he actually makes it into a couple shots in the movie and i'm like this is wild dude yeah
0: i i mean that would not even happen today right cuz they um, even said
2: there was like no security on that set
0: no no security at all they 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 hired what they called hippies, but I would call vagrants in this day and age. uh, People that like nomadic kind of, um you know, locals that were either missing limbs or looked very, you know, interesting looking. And that's what added to the insanity of the set because you had all these people on set that were not professionals at all. And of course he's able to wind up in there and he keeps his mask on the whole time. And no one some people start wondering about it, but it doesn't get to the point where they tell him to take his mask off. So he ends up in the movie, and they never, never even knew he was there. So okay. that's pretty wild.
2: That's fucking wild. And then this legend of like him, like Rich, Richard Stanley, the the saboteur, like sort of grows and everything. But he was like, I, I didn't do anything. I just fucking no, like it's was like, on it's set. Not like he <laughs> burned it down. Yeah, he 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 wanted to. Um and I know that like when he originally got fired, he was like shredding like all the fucking scripts and his notes. He's basically he was like fuck you guys. And honestly, as an artist, you know, I can totally understand that. We're we're sensitive folks, you know, and I, I totally get where he's coming from, also knowing how important this film was to him or how important this story was to him. So, it's yeah, maybe it's not the most professional way to act, you know, but at the same time fuck those fuckers that's what i say
0: yeah at the at the the bottom line was as the movie as i finished the movie my final thought on it was that he uh is a is a is a true misunderstood artist that he you know he he's not uh a filmmaker by hollywood standards working for a hollywood company you know so it was like the wrong guy for the job um i think you know it's it's they both the, everybody had different visions and at the end of the day it's too bad that richard stanley seemed to suffer the most out of it he took the most flack um it was nice to see that he's made a comeback with color out uh, of color out of space and i hope that he will make another movie down the road i mean shit <laughs> other people have uh Done far worse in this industry and continue to make movies, uh, Woody Allen. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, you know, what about me? Don't forget <laughs> about me. I did.
2: I did I Ghost did, Dad. I did Leonard Part Seven or wait, Part Nine. What are the Part parts? Six? There you go. It's
0: Part Six because I'm Randy Cosby.
2: <laughs> Can I tell um, you? I saw Ghost Dad and Leonard Part Six in the theater as a kid. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know what? You're right. Actually, I was not impressed with Leonard Part Six, even though it was. I was like, I don't know, like ten or eleven years old. I was like, I am not impressed with this.
0: <laughs> oh God. Yeah. I mean, but I still love me some Fat Albert. I will
2: say that. I still love me the Cosby Show, man. It's it, yeah, and I I love Richard Stanley. Um, you know, I'm with you. I I you know I, I do hope that like. The allegations are, are, you know, not correct or whatever. But at the same time, I don't hope that she's, you know, if, if he did physically abuse her, then I do want her to have justice as well. Um, I love Richard Stanley. I've said that from almost the beginning of our entire show podcast after dark with hardware being my, my second, you know, film that I even broke down. Uh, maybe one day we'll revisit it. Cause I'm sure those early breakdowns are, are a bit rough. Um, but uh, you know, it's, I, I very much enjoy this documentary. I find it to be, infinitely fascinating um it's also i find it to be a great insight into a very like you said misunderstood maybe slightly disturbed artist you know um now i'll reserve that to, to statement for uh, klaus kinski uh, but uh definitely <laughs> misunderstood um and it, it's just I, I i i find this also to be entertaining like it was a very entertaining documentary as well put together well done I remember when you and I watched it the first time I, we were both like that was a damn good documentary and uh, I do love a good documentary I'm not gonna lie so I highly recommend this one if you're a, fr- a fan of Richard Stanley check it out if you're a fan mm, who is of Island of Dr. Moreau or if you just want to see an example of like man everything that can go wrong on a movie and then does go wrong and then the movie still happens i mean i think you know we we, we both malign the film because it's trash but it is still a film it did come out it does have like it's a three-act structure like it fulfills all the things that a film needs to fulfill it just just kind of sucks doing it you know
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you want to go, I don't know about Island of Doctor Moreau, but the documentary is on YouTube for free. If you want to go check it
2: out there. Oh, Lost Souls on is YouTube, is on YouTube for free. Okay, yes, they probably put that up there when uh, when when they were no longer selling the Blu-rays. <laughs>
0: They're like, ah, just throw it up there,
2: just throw it up there for free. So I highly recommend it. Zach, do you recommend this documentary or not? I do,
0: I do. If you if you like uh, behind the scenes Hollywood stories, this is a very good one. Um, And it's, it's just very bizarre and kind of shows the ins and outs of this industry. Uh, It's not a glorification and it's really well done. So yeah, I highly recommend it. And I'm glad you brought this one to the table, you know, with this, maybe this will be an annual thing where we bring interesting, something avant-garde to the the summer months. And it fits because I know that Richard Stanley is uh, one of your favorite directors uh and you know for my follow-up warner herzog is one of my favorite directors so people are probably (laughs) like really man you never really no you'll find out when you listen to that episode
2: yep so as you all know uh we'll have a week of something in between but then uh the next movie we will be reviewing is uh, the Zach's pick for the documentary series, and that's My Best Fiend. So uh, make sure you go out and watch it now, you know, if you can, and everything before uh, before that episode drops. But we do hope you all enjoy the, the, this little, you know, something different that we're doing here. Uh, we, we talked about it, I think, on TV Obscura, how we used to, you know, have those little weird one-offs, like Obscure Toys and Obscure 80s video games, but then TV Obscura just sort of absorbed that stuff. So it is nice to take a little bit of a break from the you know all the hours of breaking down the movies which we love we love guys don't get me wrong i absolutely love it but you know it did take me 3 days to break down Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man so you know and it's going to it it took me about the same amount of time to edit it as well because as you all know it was about a little bit over a 4 hour episode so it's uh it was beefy guys and gals and it's nice to have something that's a bit more Smaller (laughs) to do, but uh, what's uh, what's going on right now in the month of uh, August on two dollar late fee right now?
0: So, two dollar late fee is doing something very different as well. Uh, we have a Patreon exclusive show called Tales from the Video Store that uh, Corey's been on, we've had Mm -hmm. Aaron Gilmer's been on. From uh, Matic Movie Monday podcast, uh, David Irons will be on there. Diallo's been on. We've had a lot of great guests on this this uh, Patreon show. Well, we're bringing a Patreon show to our regular feed for the month of August. We are going to uh, inter- We interviewed the um, owners of a video store in Los Angeles called Vidiots. It's one of the most famous video stores in LA. Uh, they have a lot of exciting stuff going on now and they tell some stories from way back when it's a, it's a really fun episode. So we've got that on our show and the rounding out the month. Uh, we had Luca Berkovici in the beginning of our, uh, this, this year, 2022 as a guest. And out of nowhere, one day he's like, Hey, do you want to interview the screenwriter for rad Sam Bernard? And we're like, okay, sure. So we brought him on. He told some great stories. well, there's a connection to Pad because he wrote the screenplay for Three Fifteen.
2: Oh, the moment of truth.
0: Yes, so he has some crazy stories. This guy and I've I've been on podcasts before uh, when people go, you know, how do you book your guests or or what what kind of uh, you know. Like, what's your process of, of how getting a guest on your show? And I said, well, sometimes the best guests are not always the big name. Sometimes yeah. the, the best guests are the ones that actually do the behind-the-scenes work. Richard Wenk, who wrote and directed Vamp, you know, he was a fantastic guest, but he's also written uh, a shit ton of movies, uh, including the Equalizer films, yeah. uh, for example, and so so not always getting that big name like a Wings Hauser. Obviously, that's a whole other story. But, but getting somebody somebody uh, you know kind of lesser known or unknown like Sam Bernard uh, is is a great get. So he's going to be rounding out the month of August on two dollar late fee. So Tales from the Video Store and a little bit of rad
2: action. Oh, dude, that's that's freaking awesome, man. That's so awesome. Um August, buddy, you know it's funny? Uh Adam uh, my co-host from uh Cartwright Seinfeld Podcast, and you all heard him on TV Obscura, uh probably the I guess the last one we did, which was the nineties cartoons episode. Uh he's gonna he's actually flying up here to Oregon, uh, from Georgia, uh, for a long weekend to record our final episode of Cartwright, a Seinfeld podcast. Wow. I know. I know. Well, so uh the, our curb your enthusiasm show will keep going on the Patreon page till we're done with that. Uh uh, but our car, you know, Seinfeld will be will be wrapped up. So we're going to actually record our series review face to face, which will be a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, since uh, podcast after dark will never end, Zach and I will never record a series review of that.
0: <laughs> we will do and We will do one. Uh, I'm, we're going to at some point. It'll probably be in 2023. But Corey will come down here and we'll do one at real voice. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe maybe we'll do a, maybe we'll do the uh, the next crossover event that, in person. That at, would be at real
2: voice. That would be awesome. I loved. I would love to meet Mike. Have I? I've met Dustin once in person, I think, way but like before I moved, I think, maybe.
0: No, I don't think so. Wow.
2: Wow. I would love Dustin. I don't, I've never even met him. I feel like I've known him my whole life. That'd be great. But yeah, well, I'll definitely make my way down to L.A. Uh, we're definitely going to be hitting up conventions at some point. Um, you know, life, guys and gals, life. But uh, this was a lot of fun, and I'm glad we got a chance to talk about this documentary. And I, I really appreciate, uh, you know... Doing something different with you, buddy. This was a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to digging into My Best Fiend, which, uh, guys and gals, behind the scenes, Zach and I are going to record it right after we're done recording this, except you won't hear it for two weeks. But uh, until then, as always,
0: we'll catch you on the Kinski side. Imagine being one of the last people on Earth, being trapped alone with something not human. Something always watching. Something always waiting. What would you do? Where would you run? Where would you hide if you were haunted for seven winters alone? podcasting After Dark presents Seven Winters Alone. A dystopian haunted house story by David Irons. Available now in paperback and ebook.